Well, folks, a very warm welcome to our latest generation podcast. And uh, my guest today is a friend and a colleague. He is Reverend Andy Longway. Andy is minister at the church in Cumbernauld, Cumbernauld's North Lanarkshire. Would you believe it's the ninth most populated uh, town in Scotland? And it is roughly between Glasgow and Edinburgh. But I think, Andy, would it be safe to say that it's more Glaswegian than Edinburgh? Absolutely, yeah. Most Cumbernauld people view themselves as Glaswegians. Excellent. So you're minister now in North Lanarkshire. Uh, you're not a stranger to Lanarkshire. Tell us a wee bit about yourself. Thanks, David, for having me on. Yeah, um, I'm Andy. I grew up in, I was born in Malawi. I lived there for about four years, but um, when I was four years old, we moved as a family to South Lanarkshire in the little village of Kirkmuir Hill um, on the M74 and your way down to England. Um, so I grew up there and spent most of my life there until I moved to Edinburgh to study at the Free Church College. Um, I grew up in Kirkmuir Hill Parish Church where Ian Watson was the minister, first David Young when I was young, and then Ian Watson was the minister, and then the congregation joined the Free Church. Um, Tell us a wee bit about how you became a Christian and sort of moved from just being a, a nominal church attender to being a follower of Jesus. Yeah, so um, so a, a huge moment in my life was when I lost my dad when I was nine years old. And then as a teenager, probably 11 in fact, in fact first, um, I looked in the mirror and realised that, you know, I'd um, brown skin and I got it from my dad and I had all this ex- existential crisis about who I was. And I started to look for answers. Uh, I didn't feel the answers I was getting from my mom or at church ever really um, answered the big questions that were in my heart. And so I turned to music. It was really African-American, African-American gangster rap music and uh, people like Tupac and Biggie Smalls. And one of the Tupac, he had a tattoo on his chest that stood for, which was Thug Life, which was an acronym for the hate you give little infants, Fs everyone. And it was really because he was uh, black, fatherless, and uh, uh, just struggling with pain. And that philosophy made sense to me, so I kind of adopted that. So my teenage years um, lived with a sort of uh, inner anger at the world and at God um, and really blamed everyone for the pain I had because of my fatherlessness. Um, But when I was uh, 17 years old, I'd been uh, just living a life apart from God, living for my own desires. I'd been a DJ, uh, just living in the world. And uh, I came. I just came to this real sense of the emptiness of it all. And I once was speaking to a friend who was playing soccer, uh, football out in America, and uh, he was on a football scholarship, and he'd come home. And I mentioned the fact that I was thinking about going back to church. And he said, oh, Andy, I've been going to church in America. I'll come with you. I've got a girlfriend, and she'd love to hear that I went to church in Scotland. So... We went to church together and it was Ian Watson preaching in the evening. And I don't know, week by week, I was drawn back to attend and he just happened to be preaching through Ephesians. Um, and I heard a powerful message in Ephesians 2 that I just remember that was the night where I realized God's word was yeah, was answering a lot of my questions because it said, you know, I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I was living to gratify the cravings of the sinful nature. Um and the, I remember even preaching on uh, that we're saved by grace. And I remember thinking that the first time I heard that was it was too good to be true. So I didn't respond to the gospel. But it was when he preached in Ephesians 5. And strangely, it was when he was preaching on um, 
marriage. Uh, and Ian spoke about, uh, I remember that sermon, it was a strange sermon because he said he was going to speak about um, sex in the context of Christian marriage. And I totally turned off. I couldn't believe that a minister was preaching on such a subject, uh, especially when my mum was present. I was thinking, this is weird. But he said in that sermon, if you're not a Christian, you won't have heard a word I've said. Uh, but you need to repent and you need to find uh, forgiveness in Christ and uh, come to know him and love him. And it was those words that the Spirit used to bring me to himself. And I became a Christian that very night. Um, and so, yeah, that's where my Christ, that was in 2018. Uh, 2008, 2008, sorry, 2008. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that. <laughs> Well, actually, interesting because you know Ian Ian Watson is not a preacher who you know hits the wall. He usually gets on target. A very biblical, very strong preacher um, talking about big issues: man's lostness, sin, eternity, heaven, hell. Uh, across Scotland and across the UK, the bizarre thing is that we are seeing that that's the sort of material that is growing churches. Have you got any explanation why that more conservative biblical approach is actually drawing people to churches and a more man-centred preaching and kind of baptised life coaching is emptying churches? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know, um, I, at that time when I, when I became a Christian under Ian's preaching, it was, there was really that reformed resurgence taking place here and in America where, where there was the big God theology of uh, God is sovereign, God is glorious, um, and, and, and all that you've just uh, mentioned. And I think it's because that, those are the real questions that we have in our hearts. Um, you know, we're all as uh, sinners and rebelling against God. We all have this, um, the, the God's, um, shaped hole in our lives and we try and fill it with man-centered answers and um, even when we go and hear messages like that I remember just before I be I'd become a Christian I started to read them um, or, or was at least listening to these self-help books and every time I read them I, I realized they were just so empty and hollow and you, you would try and uh, motivate yourself by thinking about good things and they'll come to you I even remember listening to preaching like that. I, I discovered the likes of, before I became a Christian, was like T.D. Jakes, a sort of prosperity message and the like. And all of that, you would listen to it and realise this does not work. And then I remember sitting under Ian's preaching and uh, it was the only preaching that was explaining exactly, not just uh, who I was, which it did powerfully. You open up the book and it is so relevant because it diagnoses my, my problem but it was explaining who God was in all of his glory, his majesty and magnificence. And when you hear who God is, it humbles you. And then when you hear of the good news of grace, it's, it is truly irresistible. And I think that's why there's such a growth, because it's the, 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 the saving power of the message of the gospel preached in its uh, full and a full orb nature is, is so compelling and attractive Whereas man-centered messages, um, they're in many ways just the philosophies of this world. They're empty and hollow, and they, they, they sometimes perhaps provide a sort of plaster, a bit of therapy to help for a, a moment, but it's never lasting, and you're still searching and looking for more. Okay, that's fascinating. Can you give us a wee insight into your own call into Christian ministry? Yeah, uh, so... Under Ian's ministry, I, 
I, when I became a Christian, um, the Holy Spirit really did a, a, an incredible work and transformed my heart. And one of the uh, desires was that I wanted to reach the lost. I had this voracious appetite to read. Ian fed that as a young Christian. He was, I remember, I'd literally go to the manse after a Sunday service and he would, I would walk away with a pile of books, whether it was Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology or um, Jim Elliott's Missionary Story, you know, uh, and all of these things. And they just started to sort of um, fill me with a, a knowledge of God, but a hunger and a thirst to see that the, the message of the gospel go forth. Um, then we had an assistant minister at the time, Tim Mason, who was from the Faith Mission, and he would often take me under his wing and disciple me, spend time with me, read the Bible together, pray. And he took me to the, he encouraged me to go to the Faith Mission Convention in Edinburgh uh, one summer, and I did. And I heard uh, the the old minister of Musselburgh Baptist preach, John Shearer, and he started his sermon by just diagnosing the state of the the Christianity in Scotland. And I remember him, he used the flower of Scotland, the flower of Scotland, when will we see your likes again? And then he quoted uh, from Robert Murray McShane, give me a man of God with truth to preach, a house of prayer within convenient reach, these things and the spirit's genial shower and Scotland shall be a garden all in flower. And he went on to preach really about wrestling with the, the, the call to ministry. And that night, I, God spoke to me so, so powerfully and personally that I, I felt called to ministry and the real calling that was burning in my heart was, how shall my friends, how shall my peers hear if there is not a preacher? And um, faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word. And I just remember so convicted that I was to, to be a preacher. So I, I shared that with Ian and the session in Camier Hill and Ian uh, in the church said, well, let's test this. They gave me opportunities to preach. And, um, and then it, it was really at the time when we were in the Church of Scotland and my mum said I should think of the Free Church to do my studies at the Free Church College in Edinburgh. And at this point, I didn't know anything about the Free Church. So being a, a millennial, I googled it. And uh, I remember reading, a, I think it was just at the time where the, the, the denomination had made the decision uh, regarding uh, inclusive Samaday singing hymns uh, with accompaniment. And I remember thinking, wow, they, 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 they were an exclusive Sam denomination. I hadn't really come across that. Um, although when I was a kid, David, I believe I actually worshipped in Smithton with you when, we were, when I was really young. My mum told me this and uh, it was exclusive Sam day, but I don't remember it. Oh, but, you um, don't remember it? You remember the sermon, obviously, yeah? <laughs> obviously, I wasn't there that day. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but... Uh... Yeah, so I remember thinking, okay, I'll, I'll go to the free church. And the encouragement was because it was it was known for its uh, faithfulness to the Bible. And so I got interviewed uh, by the Senate, and it was one of those strange interviews. I remember it was Professor McLeod and uh, John John L. Mackay was the principal at the time. And I just remember when I was invited in, and I, they started asking me questions, and I was speaking as this just this young buck who was, I'm going to reach the world for Christ, and. Um, and he said, you know, what, what aspect of ministry are you called into and, or do you feel a calling to? And I was like, oh, I want to be a youth pastor and then a church planter. And they then asked me to clarify what I meant by these. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you don't know what a youth pastor is? <laughs> uh, and I just remember, I look back on that interview and cringe at the things I must have uh, said and the way I must have come across. But they were very gracious and they accepted me in as a private student. 
and very quickly I found a home in the free church and was really uh, loved and invested in by guys like Derek and Neil and St. C's at the time and just the hearing the, the vision that the free church had for planting churches and revitalizing churches in Scotland that really inspired me and it was exactly where the Lord had been leading me and so I became a free church candidate during my time and was accepted in as a minister in the free church. Okay, can we talk a, a wee bit? I mean, uh, about the a big issue just now, Andy. Your your dad from Malawi. Your black guy. Um, can you tell me how you felt when you saw Derek Chauvin, the policeman's knee on George Floyd's neck? It's the big issue of the moment. Uh, mm. If you don't mind, what were your feelings yeah. when, when you saw that? Um, anger, real deep anger, pain, emotional tears. When I watched the video, um, and even now as I think about it, mm -hmm. um, watching this eight, nine minute video of murder, I didn't just see uh, George Floyd, I saw myself. And in many of these instances, that's exactly, you know, this isn't the first time we've heard of um, an African-American brother die or at the hands of the police. But this was in some ways uh, made all the more uh, significant by the fact that the whole thing was recorded. And when I watched it, honestly, I saw myself and it was really difficult and really painful. Um, and there was just that sense before the Lord of... Um, why is this happening? What's going on? How long, Lord? Will this go on? Um, now, as the story unfolded, and there was the article in the Christian Today um, that said that you know he'd been a, this guy had been a Christian, and obviously there had been other aspects of his story. And then many of my friends have got on Facebook and Twitter that I follow. Questions were asked: Was this only because of racism? Were there other factors that contributed to this? And sometimes you hear them and. And then others are just questioning it. And then the whole thing kicked off with the, obviously first with the protests and then the rioting and the looting. And at that point, you know, it's become this huge conversation. I, still within it, I feel that I, I see the injustice. I, I feel the anger. Um, but uh, at that point, you see that, that so many, so much of the response, when it, especially in the rioting and the looting, um, you're, I'm thinking, that, that I'm worried about what's going to happen, especially in the American context. I've visited America numerous times and you're hoping that it's not going to turn into a race war. Uh, you know, just tension simmering under the surface. Um, and then it starts to be, it, you see in the television screens, it's here in London, there's a, there was a protest. Um, and all the questions come, friends phoning me up and asking me, you know, what should I do? And I'm so sorry, what's going on? Um, uh, but I really struggle seeing people protesting. We're in lockdown. They're going to spread the disease. And I'm saying I completely agree. I think it's wrong to be doing so. And then you've got the then the statue came down in Bristol. And then for more phone calls, questions about that. And then saying, listen, again, I agree. I don't think it, we need to be taking down statues. Um, and I think this has kind of moved from the issue that was right at the heart of it was the the, the, the death of George Floyd and uh, just the injustice. At, at, seeing that video and, and the whole conversation moved on, but it's led 
in many ways to, to a discussion, at least in the public square, over the whole topic of racism. And personally, I, I, I think that it's a, it's a much needed conversation, especially in the UK, UK context. Um, and at the scale that it's happening now, you know, I think everyone who is social media has had to engage with discussions on race in the last couple of weeks. Um, if not even engaging them, they've, they've been uh, watching on, uh, looking on and uh, hearing things and, and forming their own opinions and their own judgments. And so for me, it's I, in, in some ways, I have been deeply moved and encouraged by friends um, in my own congregation um, and colleagues, both in uh, America and uh, only a few here, but who've phoned me up to, to chat through it and have spoken about it and they've spoken about, uh, Andy, how, how does this make you feel? And, uh, and they've empathised and wanted to understand more. And those have been some beautiful moments with some really uh, deeply encouraging conversations. Uh, can, can I stop just a, a wee minute and just move back? Can you, um, can we first of all put a wee definition on, on racism? And can you yeah. put that in the context of your own, first of all, maybe childhood experience and, and, and did you experience racism? First of all, I will talk about church later, but first of all, growing up, Kirkmuir yeah. Hill wasn't exactly the most diverse you know, no. <laughs> ethnically diverse place on the planet. Um, no, so, yeah. so define it for us, Andy, and tell us just your own experience. Yeah, and I think that's a really that's a really important place to start. So thanks, David, for that. Um, yeah, race. Um, well, the term race is actually a large, like in the Bible, there is one human race. We're all from Adam um, and Eve. And uh, the only other time the Bible speaks of race is in the context of spiritual race, because in Peter we read that we are the chosen race um, as God's people. But race in the context of the conversations that are taking place is largely the social construct of race that emerged in the 18th, 19th century. And racism is when you, um, when one ethnicity is uh, either oppressing another or treating another uh, ethnicity as different. If it were using more biblical language, it would be, you know, really the sin of partiality and uh, showing favoritism, slander that manifests itself with that. At the heart of racism is pride and prejudice. Um, and so, yeah, the Bible doesn't, you know, speak of racism in the way that in many ways it's been spoken about in our culture. The Bible says that all of uh, all human beings are made in the image of God. And because of that, we are endowed with dignity nobility and inherent value and any slander against an image bearer is ultimately a slander against God any act against another human being for whatever reason pride or prejudice is um in, in many ways not loving our neighbor so that's what I would say from is that's why racism is a sin because of what, what we do against it, one another as image bearers but in, in, in terms of racism as it's been spoken about today let's talk about the, the black and white yeah I grew up as you said David there in Kimmier Hill and you, you know you can speak to Ian Watson and others but my, literally myself and my two brothers were the only mixed race kids in the village and the only other uh, people from an ethnic uh, background were those who uh, owned the, the local corner shop and who owned the, the, the Indian takeaway um, and so growing up uh, very I, I and Kirkmere Hill is, is, is shaped by the fact that at one end of the village there is a 
parish church, Protestant church, and the other end of the village, there's a Catholic church, a chapel. And so in that way, there, there was a religious uh, segregation and the sectarianism that exists in the west of Scotland. And there would be orange marches, which often I would, uh, you couldn't, they're unavoidable, and all my friends were there, so I'd stand at the side with them as the um, bands, march band, uh, passed, and there would be often hymn tunes that I was familiar with, and they carried a banner with a covenanter, and I grew up in a home where I was taught the history of the covenanter, so I really knew the, the guy's story, and most of my friends didn't. I always thought I was strange, but at the time standing outside of Orange Walk, I always remember people saying things to me that I never understood at the time. There's no black in the Union Jack. And he'd say it to me, and I, I, it never hit me what they were actually saying. And then um, they would say to me, go home. And I was thinking, as in, like, walk back to my mum's house, you know. And I, I, as I grew a little older, and this was really young, we're talking, you know, five, six. Um, and then I started playing football with my friends. And, you know, the, they, there was many occasions where the N-word would come out and whether it was a bad tackle or just they lost a game. And there, I went home and I'd say, my mum, I was called N-word today. What does that mean? And she was always trying to protect me and love me. And she'd say, oh, it's just silly boys using silly words. And it really, it, it took a little while. It was my bigger, uh, Neil, my brother, who one day explained it, what they were saying and that they were being uh, racially abusive. And then, uh, so that was the overt racism that I experienced. And there was incidences of that through my teenage years. Uh, I was involved in a few skirmishes at school and outside the school. Um, and they all, if I remember correctly, related to me being racially abused. And I responded in, uh, with violence in, in many ways. And so, uh, yeah, I had that overt racism. But racism was a lot more subtle at times. Um, so, for example, um, and I think that is the thing about racism in the UK is, in most cases, it's more subtle. And so I'd be playing football with my friends. And uh, I remember it was the 1998 World Cup. And uh, we're all pretending to be Scotland. And I said, I'll go Colin Hendry. And every one of my friends turned around and said, you can't go Colin Hendry. I said, what do you mean? And he said, you're black. In fact, you need to go England. You can go, um, you know, Andy Cole. But you can't go. And I, I just remember thinking, okay. And so I accepted. And then a few moments later, like, oh, I stopped. Let's change uh, teams and who we are. And they would choose to be a French team and then they, or a Brazil. And then they would choose to be players who were black. But I <laughs> couldn't be white. Uh, and in those moments, I started to feel, wow, I don't belong. They don't view me as Scottish. They view me as different. And, you know, this wasn't just one off. This would happen a lot. And, you know, even when I was going to the local church, I'd, you know, I'd know people, have relationships with them for years, and they would still say, you know, you're a Malawi. And sometimes they would even speak slower as if I couldn't understand what they were saying. They would say, I've never, I love touching your hair. And I mean, it was a weekly experience going to church and having your hair felt. Oh, I've never, I love the feel of your hair. But it was always highlighting the otherness of it. And I always just felt really, I am different. And so if you'd asked me when I was 10 years old, Andy, what do you want for your birthday? This is no word of a lie. And I've said to you, I want to be white. I want what Michael Jackson had. Um, I really struggle being different. Um, and then when I was a teenager, I played football. I was part of a youth group and there were certain experiences and it, it came in other subtle forms where and as a, a kid, there was actually Byron, you know, uh, who you work with in the, in the offices there, David, um, 
Byron's sister and I, we had a photo taken together. Yeah, I'm, I'm Byron's translator, by the way. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Byron, uh, Byron's younger sister and I had a photo taken together, uh, part of a youth group, and it ended up getting used um, as part of a, uh, for a political party's pamphlet going through the doors in our constituency. And at the time, I just remember being asked, oh, we'd love to get a photo of you and some other young people because we want to have in our, uh, our our literature just how much we're dedicated to helping young people in this area. And then the leaflet came through my door a few weeks later and it said, you know, promoting racial diversity in the area. And I, I just thought, whoa, they said this was about young people, not race, um, promoting, you know, race equality. And I remember that feeling of, I've just been used. And then I, a short time after that, I was asked to be part of the Red Card Against Racism campaign. And it was at Hamilton Ackies and I was invited along and I was to, before the game, I was to give out these posters, Red Card Against Racism to the fans who were coming in. I still remember that feeling of when you're, uh, here was I, a young mixed race lad, trying to hand out to people these red card against racism posters and people just like scoffing at them. Some took them, but many just, even their whole demeanor revealed they really weren't interested. And then I was marched out on the pitch with Russell Latipe, one of my heroes at the time who had played with Rangers. And it, I just remember the complete indifference in the stands of the fans. And then a couple of weeks later, it was revealed that the one of the corners, if I remember correctly, of Haltonakis had had either been a member or was going to stand for the BNP. And that hurt. Uh, I just remember thinking, I've been used again. Uh, and so that tokenism in the world, in that context, that that, that was an experience that would happen again and again. And, and, and you just developed this sense of, uh, I'm often getting used just because I'm, I'm the mixed race guy. And often when I'm used in these contexts, most people don't want to listen to there's such a thing as racism, saying Scottish football. Or, okay. That was difficult. Just take a few more angles. I mean, what can you tell us what the difference is between racism and banter? I mean, uh, an example I often give is I was born in Paisley. Folk often crack the joke, what do you call a guy from Paisley in a suit? And the answer is he accused. And <laughs> what are they saying? You know, are all Paisley folk? criminals and drug addicts, you know, my other uh, ethnicity is from Sky, you know, the old saying a Skyman is a flyman, uh, Aberdonians are mean with money, you know. So, whoa, is there a difference between banter and racism, or does one subtly and insidiously move into the other? Yeah, I think that 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 the line between them is really hard to to know where you know where the line is. Um, but I, I've spoken with many people um, of of you know black and ethnic minorities on this. That's a that's a question that's often asked is. But what about the, the times where you have banter and someone is not? It's actually friendly. It's just a joke, and they they make a joke about it. And everyone has said absolutely. There are contexts. Even myself, I can think of times where friends, colleagues, where I've made light of uh, even where they're from, whether it's been the fact that they're from the Highlands or from wherever they're from or the way they speak or the way um, they act, and I've made light in front of it. And they likewise have, have, have done the same back to me, and I've viewed it as banter. And I think the ban where you can have banters in the context where you have real, meaningful, 
friendships and you know there's a, that common un- understanding um i i think there are times though where that it can be insidious and um you know i, I grew up again just going back to my experience growing up i i grew up and i remember at school my friends would come to me and say and my dad told me a brilliant joke about black people like it's not against you but can i just share it and then they would tell me this joke and it was always the, the n-word jokes and um I would laugh, but inside, I always, like, I just, my stomach would turn. I felt inferior, I felt laughed at, and I didn't know how to deal with it. But strangely, when my friend, same friends would come to me and say, Andy, my dad told me this brilliant joke, Scotchman, Englishman, and Irishman, I loved them. And I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I loved the jokes, right? Because I loved the fact that there were jokes shared where I wasn't the butt end of the joke, and it was the Irishman. Now, some of those jokes were innocent and they were they were just banterful. Others of them were way more insidious and it, it, there was like deeply, you know, um, sectarian overtones in them and just ra- outright racist overtones in them that I would then accept. And I realised that at times actually those jokes had crossed a line and they weren't funny. And um, so I, th- I do think that in, in certain contexts, yeah, absolutely, we can, we, we can, there's banterful conversations. And it's not just about race, you know, it's other things, as you rightly pointed out, the guy from Paisley and the, the stereotype. Sometimes these don't help, though, with, especially in mythological moments where, you know, uh, I heard a colleague recently say, you know, he, he, he jumps in a taxi in Glasgow and he's asked where he's from and he says Nigeria. And they say, oh, you know, there's a lot of, um, drug dealers there and then he makes another just a just a generalization about Nigeria and my, my colleague said he finds that hard he's totally othered he feels like he's, he's he's totally denigrated before he's just jumped in a taxi and as soon as he started playing it, the the stereotype so I I, I think it, it, it in those contexts it, it requires wisdom but one thing I would say is we live in a culture where there's a huge emphasis on political correctness and political correctness often demands perfection and it goes way beyond the boundaries. So, you know, you can't say blackboard, you can't sing blah, blah, black sheep. And if you ask a black person, do they take offence when the teacher says something regarding, say, a blackboard or blah, blah, they would say no. Um, but now that you've highlighted it, it's made it even more awkward. And I feel like I'm the problem and I've created this and I, I, I never wanted this. And, and you know, there's been times where I've cracked a joke with my own brother uh, and friendly uh, at one occasion, his birthday party and there were friends there. And it was this, our friends who were white who took real offence to the joke I shared uh, regarding my brother. I called him a monkey. And it was really a term of affection. It was an in-family joke. And um, they, they, they just couldn't believe I, I would make such a joke. But in the, the context of our friendship, I thought it was a joke. But I, I did say apologise for it because I realised that, you know, it, 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 it can be really difficult when they feel, well, if I can't make a joke, and you've made a joke, and that joke, I've interpreted it as racist, um, but I didn't mean it in a racist way at all. They, they then, um, they, they said, you, you can't say that. You need to apologize for that, which I did. And I think sometimes that's, that's another aspect of racism. You can be racist, and your intent is not to be racist. You've, that's never your intent. But it's how it's actually felt by the person who's there present or listening on. Yeah, um, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I think quite often, you know, uh, 
in the Free Church of Scotland, we can call each other we threes. Yeah. But, uh, but if someone else calls you a wee three, you think, oh, that's not very nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So talking exactly. about the wee threes, uh, talking about church, I mean, you know, someone would describe Scotland as an anti-racist utopia. Um, <laughs> can you can you tell us a wee bit about your experience in the church generally and even in the Free Church of Scotland specifically? Have you ever encountered racism and I want you to move from that to maybe what we can do as a people, the listeners to the podcast, to name racism in our own hearts, name that sin, repent of it and, and recover. You just cover these areas for us, Andy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a lot there. Um, yeah, so have I ever experienced racism in the church? Never overt racism, although... I've got loads of illustrations of times in the church where there's been incidences that that has had a harmful impact. I felt it personally, um, but let me let me give you really contemporary ones, uh, recent ones. So I was given a lecture not that long ago on an aspect of Scottish church history, and after the lecture, this guy walked up. He was well dressed, and I knew he was going to ask me an awkward question. I thought it'd be an awkward question about something I'd said in the lecture, and he said to me, "He said, where did you learn?" all of this history and I was taken aback and I thought oh maybe he thinks I'm plagiarizing and he's asking for my sources and I said oh here are the books I've been using and he said no 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 um did you grow up Pentecostal and I thought that was a strange question no I, I'm born and bred Presbyterian my dad was a Presbyterian minister my mum was a Presbyterian missionary and then he, he then followed it all up by saying I just can't believe that you know someone like you uh, knows all of this history. Here you are, an African teaching all of us Scots about our history, and it was and it was a Tony said and that I remember. Whoa, you there, there's something you really don't like in this, and I felt he was to- in that moment. It felt racist, but there was another part of it where if I, I was being patient and understanding, you know. Perhaps there was a surprise. He saw this mixed race face and he wasn't expecting someone to, to be able to know Scottish history as much. But I think that is, is, I remember hearing Tim Keller say this, and this was a huge moment for me at a race conference I was at in, in London. And he said, you know, I have to admit and confess there are sometimes I see someday a black person, an African-American person, and I make a snap judgment and say, they are not as intelligent as I am, or they are not as orthodox as I am. And he says, that's wrong. And that prejudice lives in his heart and he has to constantly be mortifying it. And I think I have experienced that in the, in, for sure in the, in the church context with Christians who, who I love and uh, respect and have said things I thought, wow, that was really offensive. Another recent experience, another situation of tokenism, a colleague I highly respect and love dearly phoned me up and asked me to to use what I thought were my Christian gifts as a minister to, to get involved in a role that he he had uh, wanted to fill. And then he told me the backstory to, to why he was asking me. And he said, well, really, the, the reason why we're asking you, Andy, is because there was a racist incident and um, the person who committed the racial uh, offence, they've been removed from their post. And it would be just good if we could have like a... Uh, a mixed race guy, a, a black ethnic minority person uh, working alongside this organization. And when I heard that, I just inside my heart sunk because I was like, this is just tokenism. You just want me so this looks good. And this 
but then I, I was able to have a conversation with this brother because I love him, I respect him, and say, can I just tell you how this feels for me and how this sounds when you ask this request on that basis? And he said, honestly, brother, I did not mean it in that way. And, and, and in some ways, yes, I had thought, you know, because you are mixed race, but it's also because I really respect you and love you and know that you're gifted and this is, you know, geographically near to you. This is why you'd be best placed to do this as well. There were so many other reasons. I'm sorry if it came across as that. Now, I found that really helpful because it often when I have moments where I feel like I've had an experience of racism, I need to learn to think the best of brothers and sisters in the church. Um, I... I realized though, so, so I have many, those are just two experiences from this year recent and I have many more like that even this year. But I, when I think the best of my brothers and sisters, I realize that they're, they're not coming against me to be, to, to use and abuse me. Sometimes they, they are saying, brother, we value you. We would love you. And in uh, times, but sometimes that needs to be said up front instead of just, this is why we're doing you. And I remember, like, and David, you know this, when I was a student in ETS, I was in all the promotional literature. And everywhere I'd go, people would say, you're the poster boy of the free church. <laughs> oh, a college, at ETS. And uh, and then they would sometimes add, and, it, and it's because you're black. It's because, you know, and in those moments where sometimes inside of me, I struggled hearing that because then I thought, I'm just been used. But then when I remembered the, the people who'd asked me to, to, to be part of the promotional material. It was my closest friends. It was, you know, Thomas Davis, someday, you know, there's no one I'm more closer to in the free church. So um, I, I remember thinking, no, this isn't racism. Um, it, it may look like that to some people, but it was actually because in the context, I, I was a friend. Um, and so you've got to sometimes look at it. You've, you, you, when you're having a discussion on racism, you've you've got to look at it more objectively, and sometimes even I need to be ready to not make everything all about racism. And I think in this cultural moment we're in, the the our culture, they identify in common grace there is this problem with racism. I think they may have diagnosed the problem right. There's a racist problem in our culture. I don't think they have the answer to the problem. I also think that their definitions and sometimes critical race theory, Marxism, whatever you want to call it, can sometimes have a huge impact that sets the agenda for even movements like Black Lives Movement. But um, I, I think we in the church need to be those who, who are able to say, okay, they've identified the problem. We have got the answer. Not only do we have an orthodox answer that, that is brilliant and gives, we tell a better story. We're made in the image of God. There is a fall. All human beings, racism exists in the hearts of every man and woman. In Rwanda, the genocide, there was tribal race, racism. There's racism with the Rohingya people right now. There's racism in Southern America. There's racism in North America. There's racism in the continent of Europe with whites against whites. No, it's not just black versus whites because of what's taking place in America. We have the, the glorious message of reconciliation that Christ came to reconcile us to God and he brought down the, the, the dividing wall of hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile. But the implications that the gospel have is that he brings down the dividing wall that exists between any uh, uh, divisions that would split pe people. So whether it's um, um, Jew or Gentile, slave or free man, uh, male or female, the gospel brings us into the, the oneness with God and with one another. And that is the message we have got to proclaim and live out. I think 
what I, I would say in the free church sometimes I've noticed is we would pride ourselves in our orthodoxy. We sometimes really do fall so far short in our orthopraxy. And where that manifests itself in is how we, um, how we love people who are, who, are, who are different and others. Now, many times I've had this sort of conversation with people who say, oh, but wait a minute, man, we've, sent mission- we said we've got missionaries in these contexts. We've, we're doing mission work in Glasgow, Asian outreach, you know, among the Roma people. Um, and I've heard ministers stand up and they, they're the first to say, you know, oh, the nations are on our doorstep. It's a great thing and so on and so forth. And, you know, then I hear them talk about people within their city often of other ethnicities, and even just the way they speak about them reveals your doors are not open to them because you don't realise that the way you're speaking, a a person of a different ethnicity would take real offence to the way you behave and the way you act, and you don't even know it. It's just the way you're speaking, you know, the things you pride, the thing. Often what happens, I can see, especially in a conservative, reformed evangelical church like ours, we can so love our cultural preferences and we don't realize them so you know in, in our conservative culture just say it was let me use something trivial like whether it's wearing a, a suit to preach or whether it's having um accompanied music that's you know very low we can sometimes raise them to the level canonize them to the level of orthodoxy and any departure from them so the pre- preacher who doesn't wear a suit the church that has a way more vibrant and upbeat style and worship and people in our context and in our church culture can view that as a drift from orthodoxy where actually it's just cultural preferences and many of our cultural preferences can often be um, difficult for people from other uh, backgrounds not that they 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 don't uh, accommodate and come along and engage with them they do and they are really patient with them sometimes uh, when they make a suggestion or where they they say you know i remember one african brother saying to me i'd love you to preach way longer i'd I'd love it if your services lasted longer than just an hour um because of his cultural uh, experience of christianity and um you know some people in our context that are you kidding we we don't want a service longer than an hour that's terrible but in that moment i think we, we sometimes need to just appreciate actually that brother what he loves is is being in the presence of god with the people of god and he's grown up with that. And sometimes we want to rush out the presence of God or we like it just done so orderly uh, and, and so succinctly that, that it can actually, it, it can be strange for someone from a different culture. Um, I remember Suraj, my friend from Nepal, when he first spoke about coming to the Free Church, he said, having transitioned from worship in Nepal to, I think he was worshiping in a church in the, in the West when he first came, I think he was in the air, and he said, when I experienced free church for worship for the first time, he said, I honestly thought God was dead because he'd come from such a vibrant, passionate background um, and everything was quite staid and still. And I think understanding that is if we're going to be people who are committed to the Great Commission in 21st century Scotland, which is by the day increasing diversity, we're going to have to think long and hard about how we uh, reach out uh, and how we uh, die to our cultural preferences in the name of Christ to, to love our brothers and sisters, that may, we may be one with them. And I think if we did that, one of the, the really effective things would be this. 
is our culture right now who are swept up in this whole race discussion and potentially even a, a race war, they could see that we are actually leading the way in the most compelling uh, story and it's lived out. They could walk into our church buildings, see diversity, but not just see diversity, see true uh, love uh, where we come together around a meal and we fellowship and we love each other and, and, and it's a picture of the kingdom to come. I think uh, one of the, the, the things I, I, I just detect right now when I look at a lot of the race discussions is there's a younger generation, the millennials, Generation Z, they're social justice warriors. They, they feel passionate. They're want, they feel compassion towards the injustice they've, they've witnessed in recent days. Um, but they are in many ways being discipled by our culture. And the church, can, in its silence sometimes, or, or in its indifference to this issue, we often aren't discipling them with the, with the better story, the true story, the gospel story. And they've never had it pictured as well. Their experience of church has been mono-ethnic, monocultural. And if we're going to live in modern-day Scotland that is you know, multicultural, multi-ethnic, we're going to have to think of ways where our churches will reflect that uh, and 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 that will be, a, in my from my perspective, a really compelling reality for the next generation. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that if we're going to deal with race in the church, it's going to be that we go forth in the in the name of Jesus. And it's it's not easy. It's hard. It's difficult. People get things wrong. Um, I've had conversations just in the last few weeks where a brother has phoned me up and they've wanted to have the race discussion and literally they don't want to listen they just want to tell me where they think the whole movement is wrong and why they don't think racism exists and so on and so forth and i find that hard but then i re realize you know i have committed and i continue to commit um many criminal acts against fellow image bearers in my own prejudices within my own heart and it might not be based on ethnicity to to, to somebody of a different uh, color of my skin but I can even think uh, think wrongly about a brother or sister in Christ, a fellow blood-bought believer and dwell with the same spirit that I'm indwelt with um, on an issue or something, and, and I need to repent of that. And, uh, and people are patient with me, and so I need to be patient with people. And so if we're going to work at this issue of race and dealing with it in our churches, we're going to have to be patient, we're going to have to be loving, humble, gentle, but also be willing to to have hard and difficult conversations where we speak truth and love. Well, Andy, a hundred thousand amens. And, uh, you know, we're coming now to the end of our, our chat. Wow, it's been an amazing conversation. Uh, I think I've experienced four emotional seasons in 45 minutes uh, from literally tears when you were telling me about your childhood experience to almost... Um, Pentecostal frenzy with you know affirmation at the end there <laughs> when you were talking about diversity you know um, mm. thank you so much we we wish you every blessing in your continued ministry in Cumbernauld um, we thank you for being a, a voice for the gospel and not just a picture boy for diversity uh, you are a poster boy for the gospel and that's your passion mm. and you know, we, we thank you for that so Andy thank you so much for sharing your life with us and we wish well, you a blessing 
Thank you, David. 